Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. And thank you for joining us for today's discussion, looking at the potential regional implications of the current events in Ukraine and how this might impact domestic and international businesses operating in the region. And I'm delighted to say that today I'm joined by three speakers from across Global Council and our network of partners um, who we regularly work with. Um, I'm joined by Marek Mudrasek from CEC, one of the leading political consultancies in the region. Um, Vasa Miroshenko, a partner of CFC Big Ideas, um, the leading consultant advisor on communications and consult- government consultancy within Ukraine. And Global Council's Alexander Smotrov, who is our practice lead for Central and Eastern Europe. Russia and Eurasia. I'm Rebecca Park. I'm our practice lead for financial services here at Global Council, and I'll be chairing today's discussion as we look at the various different parts of the impact of this conflict and the crisis surrounding it for businesses operating in the region and some of the economic concerns that we're seeing coming forward. But before we begin our discussion, I'd like to kick off by introducing Alexander to provide some initial background and context to some of the issues we're looking at today. Uh, thank you, Becca. And um, this uh, has been a very turbulent uh, week, uh, probably one of the most uh, intense and uncertain weeks uh, of the whole crisis, which started uh, back uh, in November in its current stage, but it has been going on uh, for much longer. So this week we've seen um, some uh, media headlines around the world, uh, some uh, with uh, the date of the uh, war attached to them. So fortunately, there hasn't been uh, anything uh, terrible happening uh, yet. Unfortunately, we should uh, say yet because the situation still remains volatile and uncertain. So we uh, we've heard statements from uh, Moscow about the pullback of the troops and commitment to further diplomacy. But on the other hand, we haven't seen much of the real uh, action on the ground, uh, which would uh, support these uh, words. And we, we, we've seen lots of uh, concerns still coming uh, uh, in from uh, from the Western uh, countries, from NATO and from uh, Ukraine itself, that Russia needs uh, to show more commitment to what, uh, what it uh, declares. Uh, at the same time, markets follow the situation very closely and very nervously, unfortunately, uh, again. So um, uh, in the short term, uh, it remains very uh, volatile. In the long term, uh, very uh, uncertain. So, and uh, we just wanted uh, to, to see today, so what kind of uh, short-term, medium-term, and long-term business implication this uh, volatility and uncertainty uh, might have, and uh, hopefully uh, all of us could provide uh, good angles from, from the places where we are. Thank you, Alexander. Um, We obviously get a very specific um, filtering of events and activity and how things are developing in the Brussels media and in the UK media based here in London. Um, But Marek Vassal, I would be really keen to understand what you're seeing and and how it's being interpreted and how events on the ground are. So, um, Marek, perhaps we can begin with you. How is Warsaw perceiving events over recent weeks and days? And what is the, the, the position of the Polish government more generally surrounding this? 
Well, thank you, Rebecca and Alexander, and the whole general global council team, obviously, for hosting this. This, this is fascinating. I hope will be a fascinating discussion. Uh, to answer your question, Rebecca, it's important to understand where the position of the Polish government is coming from. And just to understand that, it's really a, a historical position. Uh, ever since the fall of communism in 1990, uh, Poland has led the way in Central Europe uh, of recognizing that an independent, sovereign Ukraine is absolutely crucial for the geostrategic stability and also uh, in terms of its, its relationship with Russia. Poland was one of the first countries in the world to recognize an independent Ukraine in, in, in the early 90s, just after Canada, uh, but it was the first in, uh, first in Europe to do so. And over the last uh, 30 years, Poland has, despite some of the historical uh, tensions between Ukraine and Poland, particularly in the interwar period and during the war, uh, Poland's robustly uh, defended and promoted the principle, not just of Ukrainian uh, sovereignty, but also broader principles of the relationships between both the EU and NATO, as, as both have expanded with Ukraine, and working very hard to keep affirming the principle that Ukrainian sovereignty goes hand in hand with uh, the right of the Ukraine to, to join whatever economic association or military alliance that, uh, that it chooses. So that's the very strong uh, historical and geostrategic interest of Poland in, 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 in defending Ukrainian sovereignty. And that's been a historical position, as I said, for many, many years. So when this crisis uh, originally erupted, and when, when did it erupt, you could, obviously you can go back to Crimea, you can go back to the uh, infiltration of Donbass by uh, Russian proxies. But certainly this immediate crisis uh, and the, and the, and the build-up of Russian forces, both in Belarus and in Russia, uh, targeted at Ukraine, uh, led Poland to actually be uh, very vocal in, in, in trying to you know, drive the Western response both in terms of economic sanctions, uh, but also uh, the military response. Obviously, there is no direct military engagement of either Poland or NATO within, within Ukraine, but Poland was also arguing very strongly that insofar as possible, Ukraine should be offered uh, uh, defense materiel, and Poland itself has actually committed to transferring to Ukraine manpad systems and UAV systems to help Ukraine uh, defend itself. But also, Poland, uh, what this uh, uh, crisis has done is actually put Poland as a back in pole position, if you forgive the pun, uh, in, in terms of its relationship with the United States and the position that both Poland and the United States have taken on, on the sanctions, uh, on, on economic sanctions. Uh, for much of last year, Poland, as you know, uh, was uh, to some extent uh, frozen out of the top table, both in Brussels and in terms of the US relationship due to some controversies domestically over rule of law issues and media reform issues. That has largely, and certainly far as the media issue, has been put to bed with the United States following the veto by the president of the uh, controversial media law that was causing a ruction in terms of the bilateral US relationship. But what that has done now is that the United States is talking directly to Poland, and Poland today, in fact, hosting uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin of the United States in Warsaw, talking about the bilateral relationship and how to respond to the Ukraine crisis. So that, in a nutshell, uh, both for historical reasons and for ge ge geostrategic reasons, but also 
economic and uh, political reasons, Poland has taken a very, very firm position on Ukraine, and both in terms of the debate on sanctions and the military response, Poland leading the charge, in fact, within uh, continental Europe on the, on, on the robustness of the response of both the NATO alliance and of the EU. Marek, thank you. You've definitely picked up a few of the issues I know we're going to come back to later in our discussion, particularly around sanctions, but also um, as you look at the reform agenda, what some of the, the longer term implications in the region might be. Um, but Vassal, while we're, we're just starting off, um, a similar question to you very much. You're based in Kiev, talking to businesses, colleagues. How are events being perceived at present? Well, there is a great deal of uncertainty and um, naturally the business is getting ready uh, for a possible invasion. And for that purpose, they have many companies have uh, designed uh, their contingency planning and they have been, uh, there was discussion, of course, in the, in the, in, in the public about that. But I think uh, different uh, Western as well as Ukrainian companies have taken it very seriously and they have uh, considered how to uh, maintain uh, their operation uh, in case of an invasion, how to secure the processes, how to uh, take care of the safety of their personnel, as well as all, of all the finances. Uh, recently, the European Business Association has conducted a survey uh, among its members, and uh, they have concluded that 45% uh, of the companies which were surveyed said that they're going to stay in Kiev in case of invasion. Uh, another 17% said that they may consider moving to western part of Ukraine to Lviv, and only about 10% uh, said that they may actually leave the country or relocate to a different um, place. Uh, but um, apparently uh, what I, you know, speaking of, of, of the impact um, on, on business and, and Ukraine's economy, uh, it's, it's been grand. And, you know, for the past eight years, Ukraine uh, suffered enormously, apart from the 14,000 people which were killed. And we have uh, over 1.5 million of internally displaced people. Um, the economic cost of, the, of Russia's waging war in Ukraine uh, was actually estimated. Uh, Center for Economics and Business Research, which is a London-based think tank, calculated that this damages now amount to $280 billion. And it all comes from the lost assets, lost assets in Crimea, as well as in the occupied territories, lost uh, tax revenues, reduced investor confidence and reduced you know, confidence in Ukraine's economy. And this is all has led to severe economic damages, which is you know, directly affecting the lives of Ukrainians. And um, and then will be further um, implications as, as we look at it. Ukraine is one of the biggest exporters of agriculture products and is contributing to food security. Should our export be uh, disrupted, uh, it's going to uh, send you know, commodity prices um, uh, up uh, enormously uh, and, and actually affect um, the food security of many countries in the Middle East and Africa, for instance. Uh, apparently, there are many other kind of wider implications. Uh, we may you know, be able to discuss them further, uh, but definitely uh, my belief is that, um, and it's pretty much most of the Ukrainians share that, that um, Putin's invasion into Ukraine eight years ago, uh, one of the primary goals that they pursued was to destabilize Ukraine. And Ukraine can, was, you know, to a great extent affected uh, by that. Of course, what we are seeing now is actually a next level up 
uh, you know, the threat of possible invasion is hurting Ukrainian morale, is discouraging any investment, all any possible expansions of, of, of the companies which are present in Ukraine, international companies, they have put them on hold. And, um, and, and apparently in this environment, it's very difficult to generate growth. Uh, it doesn't, it's not the fertile ground for that. And, um, and, and that's what is going on. And this is what we are facing. Anyways, we are trying to remain resilient and as, 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 as people, as well as companies and corporates have uh, trying to be resilient as much as they can. Vasa, I'm really keen to stay with this this sort of theme that you've started to talk about, which is looking at some of the, the broader economic impacts and the business impacts. Um, obviously, even if it doesn't come to conflict, as you've said, the impact on the economy is already significant. We're already seeing investor and capital flight, but also businesses are also talking a lot about the consequence and impact for their supply chains. You know, do they need to reroute or consider moving away from existing routing um, through the Black Sea or um, an air and look at alternative routes? And I suppose I was keen to understand, are you hearing much from businesses about that? But also just to touch on a point you raised as well, how different is this from the situation in 2014? Obviously, businesses' first reaction and uncertainty is often to look at events that have happened before and how they reacted then. But are you seeing significant differences? Is there a, a different degree of concern or activity being um, sort of undertaken? That's right. Uh, in 2014, we were caught off guard. Uh, nobody was expecting that to, to, to unfold. Uh, what we saw was, you know, illegal annexation of Crimea and direct military Russian intervention in the, in the East. Uh, and uh, the West was unprepared. Ukraine was unprepared. Uh, this time, we, we are much more prepared. We have the backing of the, of the, of the, of the Western countries. Uh, there is military support coming in. Uh, and the companies apparently have become much more uh, prepared. And, uh, they have been able to implement some of the protocols, security protocols, which were not in place uh, eight years ago. Um, nevertheless, it's still, um, you know, and, but however, uh, what we are seeing this time is the um, possibility of a direct military invasion is much higher now. Um, and um, we, we do hear uh, reports from the intelligence uh, that um, something is about to happen. And, uh, and naturally that in this kind of environment, um, it's, um, it feels intimidating, uh, but also speaking of, 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 of global supply chains, um, last week, uh, we saw some of the military exercises in the Black Sea. One of the ways of how this military exercises can, can evolve, they can block all the seaports of Ukraine. And that's hence 60% of Ukraine's export go, goes through the Black Sea ports. And that includes steel, steel products, and all the agricultural commodities. And uh, Ukraine can be in a way paralyzed. Also, the business is very much concerned about the increasing cyber attacks. Uh, just several days ago, two major state-owned banks were hit with cyber attacks. Uh, but there are uh, indications which... Uh, critical infrastructure could also be hit with cyber attacks, which may include government services, uh, utilities, electricity grid, uh, and other aspects of, of that critical infrastructure. And that can undermine the whole, the whole country very quickly and put us in chaos. Marek, um, sort of move, keeping on this theme, how do you think the escalation of events has impacted the sort of economic stability in the wider region in terms of security, architecture, but also the political and the business environment? And, and how are you seeing businesses and firms react? 
Well, I think, yeah, thank you, Rebecca. I mean, the, the question of the economic impact, particularly in the context of Poland and Central Europe, I think has to be seen on, on, on three, three, le three levels, as it were, uh, as this crisis progresses. And, and we hope there won't, of course, be an invasion. But if there is, that, that would be the immediate shock uh, well, I think will be significant in, in, in the short term, that's for certain. Now, we'll see that, obviously, first of all, in the possibility of a migration movement, which in itself will be a huge disruptor, uh, both in, in Poland and the other countries that abut uh, Ukraine, where migrants may be wanting to make a crossing, either uh, Romania, uh, Hungary, even Slovakia. And certainly Poland is, is internally working on how to manage that, were that crisis to occur. Uh, and so the, the second immediate impact is obviously going to be on gas. And this is actually a very important part of the economic equation. Any uh, significant Russian incursion uh, into Ukraine, which either disrupts uh, stops or, uh, in fact, allows Russia to take control of the very significant gas flows within Ukraine. Remember, Ukraine remains a very significant transit region for Russian gas into, into, into Europe via Poland, would have a, an immediate knock-on effect, obviously, on gas prices, and the immediate economic shock of, those, uh, of that will be significant, and obviously it will feed through into energy prices, which are already highly stressed as a result of the, uh, uh, in fact, the Russian manipulation of gas prices over the last six months, as well as as well as other other factors impacting global energy costs. So that's going to be something which will affect Poland very quickly and, and very directly. Then you would have what I would call the secondary effects uh, of, uh, of 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 an invasion or a continued crisis, and that is the potential for a loss of confidence, investor confidence not just within Poland, but within Central Europe. A uh, number of, uh, obviously, as we know, Poland and a number of other countries have their own currencies, which are vulnerable to sell-offs by investors, were there to be a, 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 a fall in confidence in, in the long-term economic security of the region. Uh, a number of uh, Ukrainian companies are listed on the Warsaw Stock Exchange. And uh, as those uh, potential fluctuations in confidence occur, then that will impact not only currency, currency levels, but also potentially uh, in inflationary pressures may May mount, and this is obviously in conditions where uh, the region is is emerging from from the COVID crisis already. Uh, many economies in a fragile state, so these additional external shocks, I think, would be of great concern to any um, to to the investor community. And the third area, of course, that actually potentially in the longer term has the greatest potential impact on economic. Uh, stability or economic uh, conditions is the potential impact of sanctions. We haven't talked about that yet, and perhaps we will in, in, in more detail uh, in, in a few minutes' time. But we've heard significant um, uh, uh, you know, rumors coming out about the potential sanctions that might be wielded. They, 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 they impact not just oligarch money in London or in France or wherever those assets are hidden. I think it's a certainty that the governments, particularly in the UK, will make a move on that. But there is also talk of uh, restrictions on uh, SWIFT is off the table, by the way. That was originally mooted, but due to pressure from uh, European governments about the potential impact on European industry, that's been taken 
off the table. But there is a potential for very strong sanctions against uh, Russian banks and Russian financial institutions. Spare Bank, some of the other banks that are operating within Europe uh, would be sanctioned. And there, are also, there is also talk about the US government, uh, not just from the US, but also using its very strong enforcement uh, capabilities, uh, hitting directly uh, certain key exports into Russia, particularly in semiconductors, which is regarded by the US administration as a potential Achilles heel of the Russian economy. Uh, but taken together, obviously, any uh, sanctions regime which is imposed by a combination of the US, US with its international enforcement mechanisms, and from the EU. And Poland has actually been leading the debate within the European Union on the efficacy of sanctions and, and the degree to which those sanctions should be strongly imposed. But then there is also the prospect, of course, of retaliatory uh, quasi-sanctions, if you like, uh, coming out of Russia particularly on, on gas and energy supplies uh, uh, and other measures which Russia could take actually to also disrupt uh, the uh, West European economies. And we're not even going to go down the rabbit hole of potential cyber assaults, which Russia could potentially mount on Western financial institutions or the internet or the banking system. So it could spiral out of control. But all these things taken together, the short term, the medium term, and the long term sanctions impact, I think, would have a very, very significant impact on the economies of Central Europe. And in many of them, particularly Poland, uh, the Polish government at the same time, uh, and it's very important to understand this point, uh, the, the judgment of the European Court of Justice two days ago in Strasbourg, which uh, sanctioned, as it were, or, or, or legalized the, the concept of the conditionality mechanism of EU funding for countries within the European Union that perceived as having uh, rule of law transgressions in particular, is threatening to deprive Poland in particular, as well as Hungary, of substantial transfer payments, which were due to the region, uh, due to those countries uh, from Brussels, uh, both as part of the COVID relief mechanisms, as well as the longer term multi-year financing mechanism of the European Union, which is kicking in from, uh, from, from this year. Uh, and, and that double whammy, if you like, a, a hit on transfer payments as well as a slowdown of regional economies will have a very significant impact on domestic economies, on policy, and particularly at a time where Poland is facing elections next year. There was a there's a grand welfare spending plan which the government is is trying to initiate. And where is the money going to come from, particularly if there is a slowdown that obviously impacts economic growth, that translates into lower tax receipts, lower VAT receipts, uh, increases pressure on the domestic budget of Poland and other countries in the region. So I, I've tried to sort of pack in a lot into, to answer your question, Rebecca. But ultimately, yes, this is something which we, we really don't want to happen, not just because of our concern for Ukrainian sovereignty, but also because of the medium and long-term impact to the, uh, to the regional economies. Perhaps a bit later on, we'll come to dis discuss how the region might respond to that, which is a bit more optimistic, in my view. But I'll just leave it there for the moment. Thank you, Marek. And um, before we move on to sanctions, I'm sure it's, it's a topic we will get um, onto and, and may spend a, a fair amount of time on. I think um, I was really keen to, to bring Alexander in at this point to kind of look at what, um, what the 
impact on Russia's key industries and sectors are right now for the the sort of conflict, the threat of conflict and threat of invasion, and, and how um, how we're seeing sort of some of the businesses um, within Russia and, and broader concerns react, sort of separate to the kind of specific sanctions concerns that we sort of touched on briefly already. Uh, so um, probably we should uh, start here with the uh, immediate impact on the um, uh, Russian stock valuations and also on the Russian currency. We've been watching it uh, for some time since November, and it goes very, very closely um, uh, in parallel with uh, political events. And actually, interestingly, so both currencies, the Russian ruble and Ukrainian hryvnia, uh, they uh, follow each other uh, very, very closely as well, which means that uh, uh, this situation uh, provides an in impact uh, on both uh, countries, on both economies, very, very uh, similarly, uh, in a very um, similar way. And uh, for both uh, economies, uh, this exchange rate question is uh, quite important because it's not just um, for businesses, but also for consumers, an important indicator of the um, economic stability and uh, consumer and business confidence. Uh, and th this has been... Um, obviously uh, uh, impacted by, by the crisis. And people uh, in Russia and Ukraine, they both watch this exchange rate uh, news as like weather forecast. And this uh, might um, snowball uh, as, as an effect when you look, uh, okay, how your um, uh, currency uh, depreciates uh, very quickly and then appreciates again and goes up and down. Uh, and the central banks uh, actually uh, spend a lot of um, uh, effort and money to intervene and to stabilize the, um, uh, this uh, uh, situation. So this was kind of a visible uh, effect and the stock markets as well. So it's just a kind of general market effect of uh, the volatility uh, and Unfortunately, it's not uh, clear, again, how long this uncertainty uh, can last and uh, uh, what kind of long-lasting damage to uh, the investor confidence in, in the um, uh, Russian assets it might uh, have. Uh, on other sectors, um, I think, again, most of this um, uh, is still connected to potential um, sanctions risks and uh, um, sectors like energy, uh, also technology and financial services, they are all um, preparing for some uh, kind of um, sanctions effect. And it's impossible to um, completely decouple uh, this effect from, uh, from, um, from the sanctions. So, um, yeah, I think that this this have been the, the most uh, visible impact so far. And the general uh, and energy um, uh, market, as we've seen in Europe, and obviously Russia is the main supplier uh, of energy for Europe, already uh, felt the uh, consequences and uh, unwanted consequences of the high uh, prices, which were caused by uh, multiple factors. But obviously, this uh, geopolitical uh, volatility only adds to that. And um, the, the energy um, uh, sector, both in the short term and in the long term, 
faces uh, a lot of um, uh, uncertainty and uh, suppliers, um, obviously, as well as um, consumers of energy. Touch on now as we move to sanctions. <clears throat> it's an unavoidable topic given events and, and something we've already touched on briefly. Obviously, in the UK, the British government has introduced legislation and passed it to grant powers for wide overarching sanctions against any individual or entity carrying on business of economic significance to the government of Russia, as well as companies supportive of the Russian government and sectors of strategic significance. And it explicitly includes energy, mining, and financial services within its parameters. In America, we've got side of a draft U.S. sanctions bill that is thought to have the backing of the White House. It explicitly names 12 Russian banks as potential targets for sanctions and would also give powers to hit companies in oil, gas and mining. It's fair to say if the bill was carried out in its current form, it would represent a massive escalation in sanctions, a level we've not seen before, even going back to 2014 and Russia's invasion of Crimea. And then at an EU perspective, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen briefed leaders at yesterday's informal council on a sanctions package, which we've been told is ready to go if Russia invades. Burrell has said he will convene a meeting of the European Foreign Affairs Ministers to endorse that package in, in the event of Russian aggression. But what we don't yet know from an EU perspective or indeed from the US, is what level of Russian activity would trigger Europe's response? Um, and obviously, one of the key contexts we've got here is, as an EU member, the UK, it's fair to say, was tra traditionally a very strong advocate for stringent sanctions. Um, Northern and Eastern members are now the remaining advocates of this kind of policy, but they in many ways, lack a major member state advocate to keep pushing forward this initiative. And it's really the first major crisis where we, we start to see the politics of some of those decisions play out and how that might impact the way the EU uses its sanction powers. Um, Marek, perhaps if I can start with you. In the absence of the UK, Eastern member states are obviously the strongest advocate for sanctions. Where do you feel a common EU position is going and what will the solution start to look like? Well, you've touched on the the, the the key point about the whole sanctions debate, uh, Rebecca. Because, uh, and uh, I think one general observation uh, is that you know Putin reads the papers as well. Putin has his own intelligence sources. Uh, they they have pretty much worked out what the uh, what the sanctions uh, regime might look like, and we we we've already been discussing. What's already out there in the public environment, uh, in terms of uh, number one, the oligarch uh, assets, as it were, in the UK. I mean, that, that's sort of a specific form of sanctions, but also primarily the banking sanctions on uh, Sberbank and the other uh, Russian financial institutions, as well as the, uh, the various uh, sanctions on key exports into Russia, such as semiconductors, which uh, Russia is hugely dependent on. Frank, actually, on US. US imports from the US, and it's not clear how quickly or how fast uh, that can be, as it were, compensated for through alternate supply chains for Russia, primarily from China, although I suspect that was very much a topic of discussion between uh, Putin and Xi uh, over the last few few weeks. But th putting that aside, I mean, Poland has, has been... Uh, 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 so the conclusion essentially at that point is that that has... It's essentially being baked in by by Putin and Russia. They've worked out probably that you know, because of, as Alexander was, I think, already hinting, the degree of, of reorientation over the Russian economy over the last few years, it's essentially a semi-autarkic economy. 
uh, and uh, at the moment, uh, Russia, as we all know, has built up hugely substantial uh, foreign currency reserves and has actually taken out, taken away some of its uh, previous exposure to the US dollar. Uh, so it's much more diverse in its currency holdings of its exposure and sort of the fighting fund, as it were, that Putin has built up over the last few years, mainly thanks to the ability of manipulating gas and raw material prices and has allowed him to build up uh, very strong foreign currency reserves and say not only dollar-denominated, uh, has given him essentially a, a very long time horizon whereby he can uh, hold out uh, on on any 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 sanctions uh, and 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 let's not forget that historically Russia uh, has suffered huge privations uh, uh, also during the Soviet period and uh, without going into cultural history too much I mean the history of the last 200 years is the history of Russian elites being able to survive and enrich themselves whilst the population because of various cultural and social factors, uh, very, very uh, doesn't actually have the mechanisms in which to affect any domestic protest to any large, significant extent. Well, this is all hypothetical, but there's no reason to think that that is going to change in, in the medium term. So the ability of Putin and Russia to absorb these sanctions is considerable. And that's actually why Poland, uh, in the internal debate, not just within the European Union, but also in terms of its dialogue with the United States government, and the United States over the last few months has set up a mechanism whereby it and other leading, not entirely the whole of the EU, but key EU countries, including Poland, have been at the table in Washington and in Europe talking about the intensity of the sanctions. Poland has been leading the way on, on saying, you know, this has got to be as robust as possible. And with a big focus, of course, uh, and we'll come to it in a minute, I'm sure, Nord Stream 2 and the position of, of, of the government. Now, what Putin obviously recognizes is that whatever sanctions regime has been cobbled together between Washington and, and Brussels is contingent on a very specific form of Russian uh, invasion. And we're not, and we, we, we hope and pray, of course, that it won't be a full-on massive invasion, as has been sketched out in some of the doomsday scenarios. But for example, if Putin were to restrict himself to a, uh, uh, as it were, a, 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 an invasion of, of Donbass of Russian forces or an incursion into Donbass of that region, uh, Donetsk and Wugansk, that are already under the control of the secessionist forces, that could be interpreted by many, so some in the European Union, as being below the threat threshold of triggering the mass uh, uh, sanctions, and particularly Germany and France, are vulnerable to Russian activity, which I would say is below the threshold. And uh, part of Putin's plan, I think, in the medium term, will be to disassemble the consensus that has been already established on sanctions and picking off weaker member states of the European Union that are vulnerable to Russian pressure or argumentation, such as Germany or France, uh, and try to sort of weaken any future sanctions regime as time goes on. And we saw, you know, in previous crises, albeit it was a much weaker sanctions regime after Crimea and the initial Donbass incursions, uh, after a period of time, siren voices emerge saying, well, perhaps we should ease off, perhaps we should you know, go back to normal a little bit. And I mark my words, this will happen even if there is a full-scale invasion in the next few years. So it's a gamble by Putin of whether 
thanks to the robustness of the currency reserves and the sort of the uh, reorientation of some production processes in Russia, that he's able to ride out even a two or three year uh, sanctions regime at the same time being able to inflict substantial economic pain, as I've, as I've explained earlier, on, on the European Union and on, uh, on European countries because of their dependency on Russian energy and the disruption that this, these sanctions will cause to those economies. So it's a question of who will crack first. And Putin, I suspect, is gambling that it will be the EU that will crack first in some way and allow him to ride out any uh, sanctions regime, which I say, I think substantially he's baked in to any military activity that he's planning. As you say, we can't talk about this issue without touching on Nord Stream and um, in particular what the thresholds might be for Germany having to make a decision on not going ahead with the um, Nord Stream investments and or whether they can keep it out the sanctions regime and what those trigger points might be for those kind of decisions. Um, Alexander, in the first instance, if I can come to you on this to kind of reflect on how you think the German government might handle this. Yeah, um, thanks, Becca. So, yeah, we've seen uh, different signals from uh, the German government uh, so far. And uh, uh, on the one hand, they are determined, um, uh, obviously, by the composition of the current uh, German governing coalition with uh, different um, political parties being part of it. So with um, SPD, uh, which was traditionally uh, more relaxed and even more uh, in favor of uh, Nord Stream. And it was conceived when uh, they were in government and was promoted by people like Sigma Gabriel and um, others. So the current uh, Chancellor uh, Scholz is kind of uh, neutral in his position and obviously understands all the limitations, uh, but he's boxed in by his coalition partners uh, uh, in a way by the Greens and uh, uh, the FDP uh, parties. So the um, overall government position is much more collective and uh, collegiate, uh, we should say. Uh, we can still um, feel some kind of different um, uh, voices within this uh, collective position, but obviously the situation is now much more uh, serious and severe, which uh, prompted um, a more uh, coherent and a more um, uh, determined response from uh, Berlin uh, that uh, uh, obviously if there is an invasion, if there is uh, a very um, significant um, you know, aggressive uh, behavior from Russia, which goes above uh, this uh, threshold of normality, uh, then uh, Germany will support uh, the collective um, uh, EU response, which would include uh, restrictions and limitations on uh, Nord Stream. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, we have uh, heard still some hesitation and um, room for maneuver, which Scholz left for um, for himself and for his government when he recently visited both Washington, uh, Moscow, and Kiev, when he was uh, still talking about okay different options and refused to um, uh, point out um, like in a more binary way uh, what uh, Germany might do about Nord Stream because obviously there are lots of political and economic. 
factors he needs to take into account and uh, there will be uh, justifications for restrictions if Russia uh, acts uh, in a hostile way. But if this threshold, as Marek alluded to, is not reached in in the view of um, uh, some uh, European uh, governments and uh, stakeholders, then uh, uh, Germany might be uh, kind of the, the, the last to uh, stand uh, and try to, to, to save this in some form. And we've also heard a lot of um, voices of the companies who invested into Nord Stream. So uh, all these uh, major uh, European companies uh, NG, OMFAL, Shell, and others uh, who um, obviously want to protect their investments and they uh, advocate the economic uh, significance of uh, Nord Stream uh, as, as an important source of um, energy supplies for the future to uh, support the energy transition goals and things like this, all the green policies. Uh, and yes, it's still an open question. So how all these components of, of the equation play out in, in, in the end? So uh, how this uh, political and economic uh, factors combine, uh, which, uh, which ones are to prevail? But to sum up, uh, we should say that uh, Germany still has um, uh, different tools and uh, leverage uh, to um, uh, at least, if not uh, cancel uh, this project, altogether than to uh, make sure that it, uh, it's uh, managed and controlled in a way which would be um, uh, beneficial for uh, Germany and Europe rather than detrimental. Yeah. So, yeah, this, this is to sum up um, uh, the, the Nord Stream situation. And uh, <clears throat> interestingly as well, so um, uh, Putin reiterated recently uh, the uh, the commitment to continue the um, Ukrainian gas transit even uh, after the 2024 when the current uh, agreement uh, is going to expire. And realistically, um, if Russia is to uh, continue and even increase its energy exports to Europe, they would need uh, multiple routes. So it will be not sufficient to uh, stick uh, with uh, only one uh, route, be it uh, Nord Stream 1, 2, or uh, the Ukrainian transit or other uh, pipelines. So they would need uh, multiple routes. And this is probably uh, the good news for uh, both Europe and uh, Ukraine that um, all, all these uh, current um, uh, pipelines will still be uh, used and then it will be uh, more diversification uh, of supply and then more um, leverage from uh, Europe and uh, Ukraine on, on the Russian suppliers. Thanks, Alexander. Um well, I think we could probably stay on this part of the conversation and some of the immediate impacts for, for the rest of the session. Um, it's often very hard in these circumstances to look beyond the escalation of events and, and what we expect in the immediate term. And indeed, many of the questions coming through from our audience are um, seeking uh, answers on how likely um, each of our panellists think an invasion will be and over what timeline. But rather than stay solely focused on this, I, I'm keen to look at what we think some of the long term implications might be um, for businesses, but for the broader economic impact in the region. Um, and Vassal, if I, if I may come to you first of all on this, um, 
obviously, we've got the European Commission's promise to allocate 1.2 billion euros as part of its financial assistance package to um, Ukraine. We've also got um, the Commission continuing to invest in Ukraine through its investment plan for the country, um, which is a further sort of 6 billion in, in investment through those initiatives and similar programs from the IMF, the EBRD, and World Bank programs. But do you feel that the conflict could stall these economic development plans and, and the government's broader economic reform agenda and, and jeopardize the future allocation of funds? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, the, well, the current situation that we have now has really now uh, limited Ukraine's uh, opportunities to borrow from international markets because investors have unloaded their Ukrainian bonds and, and actually sent the interest rates so high, which just made it impossible for Ukraine to borrow uh, on international markets. So we're pretty much reliant on the support that we can get from the EU, from the individual governments to stabilize our macroeconomic situation. So far, so the situation is so good. However, taking into account um, a possibility of further invasion, uh, Ukraine's economy uh, could be uh, severely disrupted. And then I just also would, would like to comment on the energy issue. Uh, for the past eight years, Ukrainian government, as well as Ukrainian activists and different foreign policy um, analysts who've been talking to the European stakeholders, uh, we have communicated them a very clear message that once Russia completes Nord Stream 2, Russia is going to invade Ukraine. That was clear one for eight years in a row. It fell on deaf ears. Nobody really listened to that. And this is what is happening. I wouldn't trust Putin uh, a single word he's saying because it doesn't matter what he says. We have to see what he's doing, right? The, 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 the situation which he created on the gas market this, this past year, it was all artificial. It was, you know, it created glut in that. So what we see now from, 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 a, from a European standpoint of view, they really need to take care of diversifying their energy supplies because reliance on, 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 a, on a country which is led by a totalitarian regime of Putin is not sustainable. It's not sustainable a lot. Uh, apparently now many companies are fascinated and stick to very, uh, to the, ESG standards. Um, and I have to remind you that in ESG standards, we don't only have environment there, right? There are also social standards and governance standards. And we have to see that Russia is really not sticking to the government standards. I mean, there is no democracy there. Human rights are heavily violated. There is no prospect of, of a proper, you know, democratic process within the country. And I think business has to respond to that. How sustainable is that to be continuing buying the Russian products, which is is not meeting up those standards? And, and this is a serious issue we are facing here. I mean, in the 21st century, we have Russia, which is has already violated the sovereignty of Ukraine and intends to further undermine it just for the whole reason that all we want is actually a proper way to develop our country, to contribute to growth and move closer to the EU. And what do we get? We get we get an invasion. We get a threat of invasion. We get cyber attacks. I mean, uh, how can we be talking about this in, in the modern world? Uh, this is really insane what we are seeing here. And apparently, you know, and, and, and the impact it has on business and the economy is, is huge. Uh, and you see, the problem is that for, for Russia, which has indeed been getting ready for this moment, they've, they've created this fortress economy, built strong uh, currency reserves, have reduced their foreign debt, got closer to China and, you know, kind of 
decrease their reliance on dollar transactions, et cetera, et cetera. It looks like they've been getting ready for this moment and that the fact that they are ready to sustain those sanctions. But since the West cannot really engage militarily with Russia, which, which has nuclear weapons, what, what can it do? Maybe those sanctions have to be actually imposed already now, preemptively. Why do we have to wait? Ukraine is already under attack. We get cyber attacks every day. We had part of our territory annexed by Russia illegally. I mean, we there is no way. To, why do we have to wait? It has to be done now. Uh, apparently, it's going to impact um, the, the, the business environment. That it's already been impacted. How, how much worse it can become? Vassal, thank you. Marek, we hear from Vassal already what the, the real economic and real world consequences on the ground in the region are right now. Um, we know from past conflicts and, and events that one of the things we're likely to see is, is a big movement of people um, as um, citizens look to move um, out of uh, conflict zones or, or areas of risk. And I, you know, how are European governments thinking and planning for this? How are they thinking about how they're going to manage it and cope? I know that we heard from Vassal earlier that, you know, 45% of businesses have said they will stay within Kiev, but that doesn't mean they're not making plans to move personnel. It doesn't mean that individuals aren't making choices um, to, to move and, and relocate. And, and really, do you think it's likely the EU is going to open up access? As I say earlier, we, we hope and pray that whatever action Putin does or does not take in Ukraine, the migrant crisis would be minimal. But the danger is, of course, and some of the doomsday scenarios talk about literally millions of Ukrainians are fleeing the eastern part of the country, moving to the safe haven of the West. We don't know, actually, to what extent Putin's potential invasion plans include Western Ukraine as well as Eastern Ukraine. Right now, we, there is the thought that perhaps it will be targeted more just, you know, to Kiev and going south along the Dnep River, and uh, rather than the West, where uh, resistance to Russia will be even greater than, 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 than Eastern Ukraine. But that having been said, if there is a migrant crisis, it's clear this will be a huge uh, stress test for the European Union. Uh, legally, uh, because of the visa-free travel uh, arrangements between the European Union and the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainians actually do not need a visa to enter the European Union. They can turn up on the border with a Ukrainian passport and legally, unless the European Union changes anything, gain entry into the European Union for, for a three-month period. And that's really why you have so many Ukrainian migrants already in, in Poland, uh, making up a substantial part of the uh, labor market, particularly in, in sort of, you know, restaurants and pubs and all and sort of cleaning services, all that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, uh, that, there's a threat of, 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 of entry into the European Union uh, is is significant. I, I don't want to use the word threat in a pejorative sense, because actually, uh, just in terms of uh, social cultural, uh, for social and cultural reasons, Ukrainians are very well received. Uh, in Poland for historical reasons, language reasons, they integrate well into the economy. Uh, but the influx of, of literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, on the border is going to create a significant social challenge. Uh, the Polish government and the Ministry of Interior is already undertaking work internally on how to manage that. But obviously, just as we saw the European Union uh, talking about migrant allocation, during the peak of the uh, illegal migrant crisis five or six years ago, uh, which was obviously controversial in Central Europe because Central Europe was, was very resistant, as we know, 
towards the uh, 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 reallocation regime that Brussels was pushing at the moment, uh, the tables could be turned. You could actually have now Central Europe knocking on the door of Brussels and saying, how about a reallocation regime for Ukraine and migrants that are flooding into Central Europe, whose economies and infrastructure are actually much less capable of absorbing uh, those sort of population flows uh, than the other way around. Now, uh, you know, put, put you know, one cynical interpretation is actually that migrant flow into Central Europe would not be unhelpful in the sense that we do have labor shortages, labor bottlenecks. And uh, frankly, uh, some additional uh, improvements in the size of the workforce would not be unwelcome to many Polish businesses. But it's more of a social problem in terms of housing and, and medical services, obviously, and the whole uh, aspect of that sort of flow, which I think will be a huge challenge. And it will not be a challenge that Poland and other Central Europeans will ensure that this will be laid at Brussels' doorstep. And the, the, the argument will be, you are pushing us uh, years ago. Uh, how about some of this yourself? Uh, we'll see how Germany and France and Brussels react to that. But that's obviously we're getting into hypotheticals here. So it's very difficult to actually sort of predict what will happen. But the contingency planning is already underway. It'll be a question of how far, uh, how, how large that migrant wave may or may not be. Thank you, Marek. Um, and we're just in the, the final few minutes, um, keen to move on to a couple of reflections on, on the political reform agenda and impact there. But before we yeah. do, just Alexander, um, from your perspective and, and sort of the conversations you've been having with, with clients and more broadly with contacts, um, what do you think the Russian perspective is in terms of the conflict's impact on the business environment outlook? And you know, is there a, an economic logic for Russia to the conflict beyond sort of the, the energy crisis that we've already discussed? Uh, so uh, we, we, we have um, touched upon a few uh, things already when we discussed um, the potential sanctions uh, and even counter sanctions um, impact. And uh, one of the things which um, uh, has been discussed again, uh, both in Russia and elsewhere, so whether it might cause uh, another um, another uh, pivot to the east, as uh, people sometimes call it. Uh, so basically, um, getting Russia and China closer uh, because of um, their similar political uh, positions, but also because of uh, Russia using this China factor as a, some kind of alternative. To, um, uh, trade with Europe and uh, the West in general. So, yeah, we've heard a few statements uh, and um, actions recently, um, again, from Russia, which were relatively similar to what was happening back in 2014. And actually, uh, yeah, we should uh, say that, uh, yeah, people always compare the situation with 2014. And uh, yeah, some things uh, are very different now. Obviously, the um, um, readiness from uh, Europe for sanctions and uh, uh, things like this. But on the other hand, there are lots of similarities with, with 2014 as well. Uh, so one of this, this um, pivot to, to, to the East, uh, uh, while um, the Russian government comes out and says, for example, we should increase the use uh, of yuan uh, as a currency, we should uh, consider um, 
new contracts and uh, they even concluded in a couple of new contracts uh, on uh, energy um, supplies on oil and gas uh, supplies to China during the recent uh, visit by uh, Putin to, to China. And things like uh, uh, further reliance on China uh, technology, if uh, especially if um, uh, the, uh, the the West introduces sanctions on uh, Western technology, semiconductors, and other uh, high tech solutions which uh, Russia uh, uses. So yes, all this being kind of presented as an alternative, but realistically. Uh, in the short term, uh, I don't think it will produce any uh, impact and will have any effect for various reasons, again. So it's very difficult to reorient uh, such a huge economy uh, from its traditional trade routes and supplier uh, routes into something new. But also politically, uh, China has been very cautious actually about the uh, American sanctions and they never openly uh, violated these sanctions in relation to third uh, countries because yeah, it may, may cause uh, much more problems uh, for them than uh, people might think. And also in Russia, there is still some kind of deep ingrown um, suspicion, and con- suspicion and concern about uh, getting too close with uh, China, too dependent on on China. So for various historic, political, and uh, um, human uh, reasons. So yeah, I think this this kind of uh, rhetoric on on the pivot to the East is present, but it might not be uh, as significant as uh, uh, people uh, might think. So, but the general effect, more long-term effect, on the Russian economy uh, would be um, a a restriction uh, on two important uh, uh, tracks, so access to finance and access to innovation, uh, which uh, both of them are crucial uh, for the economy, even with this uh, build reserves, even with this reduced exposure to the global markets. Russia is still a very much part of the uh, global economy, much more than the Soviet Union was, and that's why this um, uh, access to uh, finance, technology, and other things, which uh, is not very easy to replace or substitute domestically, uh, at least quickly. Uh, this is what might be of concern, and also uh, what could be uh, some kind of deterrence for uh, Moscow uh, not to cut off uh, themselves completely from this uh, uh, global supply chains and global sources of uh, capital, um, technology, and other things. Uh, things which uh, keep uh, the economy and the economic growth uh, going. Thank you. And thank you very much to our audience today, but also all of our panelists, Marek, Vasil, Alexander, thank you so much for your insight and your thoughts. If there is anyone on the line who would like to ask further questions or to discuss any of the issues raised today, please do contact Alexander or myself or your usual Global Council team member, and we'd be happy to follow up with you. Thank you so much for joining us. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.